Today, we have Dan Lannan, who is continuing our series in 1 John from chapter 3. Um, Dan is one of our members here at Crescent. He is married to Judith, and they have three boys, um, energetic boys, and great fun, uh, just like Dan. And also, another, another little fact about Dan is that he is a fantastic volleyball player. So, if you guys want to play volleyball, Dan's the man. Good morning. Thank you, Rupin. Um, it's the most interesting introduction I've had, um, and I'm glad my brothers aren't here to contradict it. Um, so if you've been with us for the past few weeks, um, you'll know we're on our fourth, fourth Sunday going through the letter of 1 John. Um, today we've come to chapter 3, and we're starting at verse 1. So um, if you turn to the passage, we'll be um, staying in it throughout. So John, 1 John chapter 3, starting at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So our son, Connor, who is, who is very energetic, um, he'll be three in November. And at times, trying to confront him when he's done something wrong gets a bit ridiculous. He has this impressive ability to completely ignore anything he doesn't want to hear. I finally get him to stay still for a second, I kneel down at his level, and I begin explaining, you know, something along the lines of, it's not okay to hit your brother with a stick, even if he has your cowboy hat. Connor will try and run away, he'll try and distract me, and then things will finally calm down, and I can start talking. But then he does his thing. He does this really infuriating thing. His eyes will go everywhere. They'll dart all around the room, everywhere except my face. And then if I say to him, look, please look me in the face, he'll manage to stare half a centimeter off my head and just stare there, as close as looking to me as he can get away with, but he never looks me in the face. I'll explain what he's done, I'll explain what the consequences are gonna be, and the millisecond I stop talking, he'll say something like, Dad, are slugs dirty if you wash them, or are they clean? 
the past few minutes didn't matter at all. He wasn't there. He, he, he nods at the right places. He repeats appropriate words, but nothing was going in. Now, Judith, my wife, will want me to point out he's not always like that. Um, sometimes he's a decent human being, and we love him very much. But the reason I bring this up is that his toddler reactions are actually just really typical human reactions. I see them in myself, and if you look at yourself, you'll see them in yourself as well. We're a bit more sophisticated, but we do the same thing. When we're confronted with our sins, with times that we don't meet our own standards or we don't meet God's standards, when we see the ugliness inside of ourselves, our eyes will run everywhere. We will look everywhere. We will look every way to avoid focusing on our sin, avoid focusing on its consequences. If we can, we run away, we quickly move on, we distract ourselves with other thoughts, with other things, even slugs if we have to. Anything to not face up to the reality of our sin. We're, pr we're pros at excuses and self-distraction. And as you already heard in our passage, John is talking about sin. John will confront us with the problem of sin when it comes to a believer's life. He's unapologetic, he pulls no punches. And as we hear his words and as we try and understand them, we're going to have to watch out for these reactions to start creeping into our minds because they'll try to. We'll try to distract ourselves, we'll try to let our minds wander. But John is deadly serious here and we need to listen to what he has to say. So we have to be alert. We have to commit to being honest with ourselves right from the start as we listen to John, because you will try to pull a corner, but don't let yourself. Now to the passage. Even at the first reading of these verses, John's overall argument is pretty easy to follow. John is writing to Christians. He says that you believers in Christ, you are children of God. Then from verse 3, we have the natural outworking of that fact in relation to sin. He doesn't beat around the bush. Verses 5 to 6, in Christ is no sin. Therefore, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And that's John's headline throughout this passage. God's children will not continue to sin. But before we follow his argument, we have to pause here for a second, because many of you will remember chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Both Danny Crooks and Gareth Lewis showed us from chapters 1 and 2 that we will never be perfect in this age. Some of John's opponents who were leading people away in the churches they may have claimed to be sinless, and John quickly shuts that down. So in chapter three, John is not saying that a Christian will never sin, or that if you do sin, then you're not a true child of God. He's not saying that. So what does he mean? Commentators point out that the verb John uses here is in the present tense. It's a continuing action. Look again at verse six. Our English translations make this clear. No one who lives in Christ keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The ESV in verse 8 talks about people who make a practice of sinning. 
One commentator puts it really well. He says, a child of God may fall into sin, but he will not walk in it. A Christian will continue to have moments of sin in word, in deed, in thought until the day they die, but they will not make a habit of it. Areas of their life will not be characterized by sin consistently. It will never be normal or expected. This is a needed clarification, but it's also important not to too quickly let ourselves off the hook. This is not an excuse to pull a Connor. John is really serious here, and this does apply to us. Continued habits and patterns of sin, parts of your life which are characterized by sin, walking consistently in sin, however secretly, just isn't consistent with being a child of God. Not too long ago in work, I had a a brief phone call with someone on the phone. I've never met this person in, uh, in the flesh. We didn't talk about our lives. It was a work call. I I think we actually just talked about rashes. Um, And I'm about to put the phone down, and he goes, you're Jamie Lannan's brother, aren't you? And I don't think he ever talked to Jamie about rashes. He never seen I look like Jamie, but something in my voice, certain phrases I used, the way I spoke, betrayed me as a Lannan to someone who had met my brother. And I'm sure lots of you have had moments like that. A person might not even look like their relative, but something gives away their family. Some mannerism, the way they walk, the way they stand. Sometimes you can't even put your finger on it, but you just know there's a family resemblance. And this is John's argument. There is a family likeness to the children of God. They do not continue to sin. Jesus is the Son of God, and we are in Him. Through Him, we are brought into the very family of God. The sonship of Jesus defines what it means to be a child of God. Look at verse 3. Jesus is pure, so the children of God will purify themselves. And verse 5, in the Son there is no sin, so the other children of God will not continue to walk in sin. There is a family resemblance in the children of God defined by Jesus the Son of God. John has already said this in another way in chapter 2, verse 5. This is how we know we are in Christ. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. John is clear and uncompromising in this. These verses aren't presented as a warning, but just as a statement of fact. God's children will not walk in sin because Jesus didn't and they will look like Jesus. So this brings us to verse seven. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is righteous is righteous, just as he is righteous. I'm sure you remember the deceivers that David Farrell introduced us to last week. These are the teachers who are trying to lead the churches into a warped version of the faith. Um, They were seducing them with uh, falsities and leading them from the truth. So they're back. And this time they're causing confusion in the churches about the place of sin in a Christian's life. And we can work out some of what they're teaching by how John counters them. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The first thing to notice is is who gets to define what right is, 
what righteousness is. We are to be righteous just as he is righteous. We saw the same idea in verse 3. We're to be pure just as Jesus is pure. Jesus defines what is right. When John says that the one who does what is right is righteous, that's not a general thing. He's not saying you'll know someone's a Christian because they're a nice guy or even that they're loving. The rightness in a Christian's behavior, the purity we seek comes from and is defined by Jesus. A vague niceness or goodness doesn't cut it. We don't get to choose what it means to be right. Our culture, our government, any other group, they don't get to decide. The one who decides what is right and is righteous is Jesus. And the one who does what is right just as Jesus did is righteous. Then remember how David Farrell showed us that these teachers attempt to separate the physical reality of Jesus from his spiritual being. John emphasized in chapter one the physicality of Jesus. He had heard him, he had touched him, he had seen him. And then he'll go on to make this clear in chapter four, verse two. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus came in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You cannot separate the physical from the spiritual. And if you notice here, they're doing the same thing again. This is an outworking of that same idea. John says, the one who does what is right is righteous. But the deceivers taught that you could be righteous in some secret way, in some spiritual way, even if you don't do what is right. They've separated being from doing. They've separated the spiritual from the everyday. They seem to teach that if you had the right knowledge, if you believed their secrets, knew the right things, then you were elevated to a higher spiritual level, and things like sin didn't really matter that much anymore. And here it's important that before we dismiss this as an old heresy for this particular church, that we look at it carefully, because this is the type of lie that keeps on coming back. Maybe you think you're right with God because of the knowledge you have. You've said the right words, read the right books, and it doesn't really matter what you do with your life. Sin doesn't really matter that much. You're in, you've ticked the right boxes. Careful, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous. Or maybe you think that you're right before God because you're the right type of Christian. That group is obviously wrong, that one goes too far, that one's just weird. You're righteous because you belong in the right group. You go to the right places. You can brush over the sin in your life. Do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous. Or we split our lives in two. We have our spiritual lives and our everyday lives. We have our church people and our work or university people, and we're different to each set. We have our private life and our public life our spiritual life and our physical life, but they can't be separated. Do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous. Verse nine, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. 
This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Again, John isn't making a threat or even really a warning here. He's just stating fact. There is a family likeness in the children of God, and there is a family likeness in the children of the devil. God's children do not continue to walk in sin. Yes, we will fall into sin. Yes, we won't be perfect. But the trajectory of our lives, our habits, the patterns of behavior will not consistently be marked by sinfulness. John won't let us be led astray. He won't let us off the hook here. He won't give us ways to weasel out of this. God's children might fall into sin, but they will not consistently walk in it. So where does that leave us? Many, if, if not most of us here, will very quickly think of patterns of sin in our lives. I did when preparing this sermon. And if there's even a hint of a pattern of walking in sin in our lives, it needs dealt with, John is saying. He's not messing about. But what next? First, what do we do when we see the sin in our lives and guilt and shame rises up and threatens to overwhelm us? What do we do then? Second problem we have is how can we change? It's fine saying we shouldn't walk in sin, that we should be more like Jesus, but how? And finally, what about our confidence before God? What does all this talk of sin mean for our confidence that we have eternal life? Because passages like ours can feel scary, but we can't ignore them. I'm sure some of you um, at some point have had the strange relationship with guilt that I can sometimes find myself slipping into. Does this sound familiar to you? You know that you're not where you should be with God. Maybe a habitual sin you keep falling into or just general apathy. And then something brings it to the surface. Maybe a conversation, uh, maybe a sermon, something you read, and then you feel guilty. You feel shame. You don't want to feel that guilt, so you avoid anything that makes you feel guilty. But that means you avoid God. You avoid thinking about Him prayer, daily life with him. Over time, those guilty feelings subside because that's what feelings do, and then we come back to God and start interacting with him again, and then soon we're confronted by our sin, guilt and shame, and we run away again. So we have guilt, shame, hide, feel a bit better, guilt, shame, hide, feel a bit better, and the cycle just goes on. And soon you can find yourself trapped in a life in which we barely actually interact with God because he makes us feel so guilty. And we can have a Christian life marked by either feeling guilty or avoiding God. And the strange thing about guilt is, although we hate it, it kind of feels spiritual. So we think it's maybe a good thing and we don't know what to do with guilt. And guilt is not bad, but it's not a virtue in and of itself. Guilt is basically neutral. Guilt is like pain. It indicates something is wrong. And it's good for us to know that. That's a good thing. It might, be spirit, it might feel spiritual to go around feeling guilty, but it's not very useful. I'm walking along, I step on glass. I know something's wrong because of the pain. I look down and I see glass sticking out of my foot. 
Staring at the wound and thinking hard about all the pain I'm in is not going to help me. The pain indicates that something is wrong and that something needs to happen. It doesn't fix anything by itself. And guilt in a Christian life plays a similar role. It indicates that something is wrong and we don't run from it, but we don't wallow in it either. It has a purpose. Remember chapter 2, verse 1. I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And as we've already read in our chapter, Christ appeared so that he might take away our sins and destroy the devil's work. The guilt and shame we feel is like pain. It warns us something is wrong and it should drive us to the one who can heal us, to Jesus. So if we are a child of God here today and we feel guilt and shame as we look at the sinful habits we have, the sin we walk in, and we feel that guilt rise in us, don't let it make us run from God. Make, it, make us run to Jesus. And that's the same if it's the first time you're coming to Jesus or if you've been doing it with your guilt for the past 50 years. And this running to Jesus is the start of the solution to our second question. How can we change? How can we transform to be more consistently like our family likeness? Look again at verse two. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When Christ comes back, we will be like him because we will see him. Now look at verse 6 again. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Continuing in sin is a sign that someone has not seen Jesus, because if they had seen him, they would be changing. They would not be continuing in their sin. Our transformation is dependent on the degree to which we see Jesus. On that day when we see him face to face, it will change us completely. And now today, the more we see him, the more we look to him, the more we will reflect his likeness. And this is back to one of John's favorite themes that David emphasized for us last week, abiding in Jesus. It might sound a bit vague, it might sound a bit hard to understand, but it's such a practical key to life as a child of God. This is not just having a daily devotional time. It is daily living with Jesus, actually looking to him and seeing him in our days and in our lives. It's interacting with Jesus as a real person in the midst of our daily real lives. There's no separation between the physical and the spiritual. This is the means of grace God has given us to change. It's all about Jesus. No amount of feeling guilty or even saying sorry, no amount of trying harder or having good habits or developing better ideas will by themselves change me to be more like Jesus. I have to come to him, be near him, interact with him in my daily life, see him, and then I will change.
because ultimately, on that final day, that is how I will ultimately change. So what do we do with our guilt? We realize it's a sign that something is wrong, and we run to Jesus. How do we change? After we run to Jesus, we stay there. We make a habit of daily living there. And finally, in the face of our sin and failure, where does our confidence come from? Where do we go for assurance that we actually have eternal, the eternal life of God in us? Look back to verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. For, for a short time, I went to school in Thailand. Um, and I remember playing outside and coming to this puddle, and there was this thing in a puddle. It was about 15 centimeters long, kind of dark purple, kind of cross between an earthworm and a tadpole and a snake. There was no eyes, no mouth, no tongue that I could see, just one long earthworm-looking body, but it maybe had scales, it looked a bit like frog skin, it moved like a snake, and it was swimming. My teenage brain wasn't sure how to react. I was curious, and I wanted to catch it. And if it's in a worm-like creature category, then that's fine, I can catch it, I can show it to my friends. But if it's in a snake-like creature category, that means don't touch it. This was something I had no category for. I couldn't fit it into any of the boxes I had in my head. For anyone interested, it's a Sicilian, a type of amphibian. But I didn't know those were a thing. I didn't know those existed. So my only reaction could be to shout to my friends, come look at this thing. What is this thing? And actually, in the Greek, that is kind of what John is doing in verse 1. The King James translation says, behold what manner of love. See what kind of love the Father has lavished. Commentators say that that word, what manner, what kind, uh, literally means what country is that thing from. It's an expression of surprise when you encounter something truly foreign, something you have no category for, something that doesn't fit in any of your boxes. And that is what the love of the Father is like. It defies all expectations. The Father's love found us as we walked in sin and darkness, showing all the traits of the family of the devil. And he called us and he made us his children. And that's not in a theoretical or purely theological way. We actually belong to his family. He actually became our father. And as we've seen earlier in John, this happens because we are in Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We are united with Jesus. Jesus is the son of the father. And since we are in Jesus, his father is our father as well. It all comes back to Jesus, and we never move on from that. We sometimes sing here a brilliant City of Light song, and it has this lyric. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Our identity is always in Christ. You are a son because he is the son, and your life is united to his. The weight of sonship never rests on us, it rests on Him. We never move on from Christ, we never become self-reliant. And that changes everything. Look again at verses 5 and 6. Jesus appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. 
Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. These verses are actually good news. Child of God, your life is in Christ, and no one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. Praise God. We cannot go on sinning because we have been born of God. That identity rests on the shoulder of Je- shoulders of Jesus, not yours. And suddenly these verses that could have struck fear in us, they become good news. We have been born of God through the lavish love of the Father and the work of Christ. That identity is secure, and we will not continue to walk in sin. We will display the family likeness of the children of God. There is hope for us. So John chapter 3, verses 1 and 10, 1 to 10. See what kind of love the Father has poured out on us, making us His children. There is a family likeness to the children of God. They might fall into sin, but they won't walk in it. Today, John challenges us to have a long look at ourselves. There's no room for complacency with our sin. Do not let yourself be led astray. You cannot separate your spiritual life from your daily life. No knowledge, no group, no one-off prayer gives us the license not to take sin seriously. He who does what is right, as Jesus does what is right, is righteous. God's children will resemble His Son. And And when we look at ourselves and guilt or shame rises up and we want to hide, don't. Run to Jesus. Guilt is like pain. Listen to it and then go for healing to the only one who can heal you. And when we run to Jesus for forgiveness, we stay there, abiding, living there, seeing Him in our everyday lives, and that is how we'll change. That is how we combat sin until the day we see Him face to face and truly become like Him. He is your confidence. No one who lives in Christ will keep on sinning. Praise God that there is hope for us. So these hard-hitting verses are double-edged. They wake us out of our apathy and our lethargy and the complacency we have with our sin. But they also pull us back from despair as we are filled with hope that we will change. We are in Christ. Sin will be defeated in our lives ultimately on that day when we see Jesus. But even now, little by little, day by day, we can be transformed as we see more of Jesus, as we abide in Him. Amen. Let's pray to close the service. Loving Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You that You have lavished Your love on us, and You want us to be Your children. You have made us Your children. We thank You for Christ. Thank You that He has dealt with our sin and that we can be in Him. We can find ourselves in Him, becoming like Him. Father, help us today. Um, Send Your Spirit on us today as we look at our lives. Convict us of our sin, Father. Show us any way in us which is not consistent with Your family likeness. Draw us to Your Son in repentance, and thank You that He forgives us. Help us to abide in Jesus and become more like Him. Lord, and for any of us who look at our lives and who do not see the family likeness of God, but who would want that, who would desire that, Lord, draw them to Jesus.
bring them to Jesus to find his mercy and his love. Thank you that that is open to us. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for your love. Please go with us now and help us to abide with you. In Jesus' name, amen.